Behind this squeaky clean suburban facade, he was a very dark and damaged and delusional man. She believed that he wasn't some freak of nature so much as the product of a fractured family with a very dark and sinister secret. But none of these apologists managed to kill the idea that Robert Lowe's godfather was no more than an upmarket version of Jimmy Savile. I'm Andrew Rule, and this is Life and Crimes. This week, a man called Robert Arthur Selby Lowe died in jail, and that's why we're going to go back in time and look at why that name is familiar. One way to tackle this subject is to say that the happy ending for Cleo Smith's family over in Carnarvon in Western Australia was in fact the exception that proves the rule in these random abductions of children. The day after Cleo was rescued, Robert Arthur Selby Lowe died in jail, despised by everyone who'd known him. He, of course, is the man who was eventually convicted of abducting and killing a little girl called Cherie Beasley 30 years ago, which is astonishing that so much time has gone past because for anybody who recalls it, it doesn't seem to be ancient history. The pictures of Cherie that we see in the paper and on television seem relatively recent. That little freckled face, snub nose, little girl in a checked school uniform with her little pink bike that she was riding, really part of the fabric of news coverage in Victoria at least, if not Australia-wide. It was a case which in its time was as big as the William Tyrrell case in New South Wales and of course the Cleo Smith case in the West. So where does it begin, this tragic and terrible story of little Cherie Beasley and a middle-aged man called Robert Arthur Selby Lowe? The truth is that it begins a long time before Cherie died. Like Jaden Lesky after Cherie and Daniel Valerio before Cherie, Cherie was put in harm's way by the choices of adults who should have known better. That is also true for the man who murdered her, the mild-mannered monster who finally died last week in the bland corner of hell where we in Victoria lock away our sex offenders from other prisoners who would kill them on sight. Robert Lowe was born into circumstances a world away from Cherie's, literally a world away on the other side of the world, and in every other way, socially and economically and culturally, he came from a different place. Lowe would become in this country, a husband, a father, a junior cricket coach, a church elder. But behind this squeaky clean suburban facade, he was a very dark and damaged and delusional man. It doesn't get much worse than what happened to Cherie. This little six-year-old who was allowed roam the streets of Rosebud in a way that worried the neighbours and both sets of her grandparents. She was so obviously unsupervised that she attracted the attention of Lowe, 
who was an incorrigible sexual deviant, who'd noticed her riding her little pink bike for hours around the streets, alone or with another little child, but without adult supervision. Lowe's long overdue death comes 30 years after the premeditated attack on Cherie that he'd been working up to all his adult life, almost certainly ever since he was himself molested in a far-off British boarding school. Lowe told a lot of lies. By the time he was finally arrested for Cherie's abduction and murder, which took a long time, a story that our listeners will know because we've looked at it in depth in the past, it did take the police something like a couple of years to nail down Lowe. They had a team of undercover police following him around to make sure he didn't re-offend and to watch him around the clock. And meanwhile, he, of course, was talking to a psychotherapist called Margaret Hobbs. And this was part of the deals that had been done when he had appeared in court for obscene exposure and similar sexual offences, as well as being fined. He would be obliged to seek professional help and the help he sought was with this woman Margaret Hobbs who's no longer with us but she was a psychotherapist and it came to be that Lowe who was really an exhibitionist in many ways told her so much about his activities that she realised that he was hinting that he was behind the Shree Beasley abduction and she spoke to the homicide squad and they subsequently bugged her rooms and listened in to what he was saying so that they could then plan how to trap him. Now, Lowe told Margaret Hobbs plenty of lies, but the things that he told her about his own childhood absolutely have the ring of truth. Hobbs admitted later to me and to homicide detectives that Lowe made her skin crawl, but she believed that he wasn't some freak of nature so much as the product of a fractured family with a very dark and sinister secret. It turns out that just before Lowe died, two days after the Melbourne Cup this year, his sole surviving brother, Rick, had died just a month earlier in New Zealand. And so the things that Margaret Hobbs heard from the child killer can now be revealed more frankly because there's no close family members to offend or distress or to contest those things which they feel they had to contest in order to preserve the family honour. It's worth noting here that there was a third brother in the Lowe family and his name was Graham Lowe. He was the older of the three. Then came Robert and then came Rick. These men were born in the 1930s in the north of England where their parents were very well-to-do upper middle-class people with connections at the highest levels. And Graham was always the dominant force in the family. He was a physically big man. He was a very good sportsman. He was regarded as a, a top-flight rugby player in an amateur rugby side. 
He became captain of a rugby side at the age, I think, of 20. He was a highly proficient blue water sailor. He used to sail on yachts and I think pretty handy cricketer and an all-round natural leader, as the phrase was often used. Physically imposing, mentally acute. And it's clear that he overshadowed both his other brothers, but particularly Robert, who was the middle one. Now, if the Lowe family weren't already ashamed of Robert when they quit England to go to New Zealand in the late 1950s, they soon found out that swapping hemispheres didn't help much, apart from getting some better weather where they went compared with where they'd been. Robert Lowe, the future pedophile, deviant, thief and ultimately child killer, had actually shown signs of a gross disturbance when he was a teenager. When he died in jail 10 days ago, it ended any chance of uncovering the complete and detailed truth about what had twisted him so badly as a child, because clearly something did. It's not making excuses for Lowe to say that as children, he and probably his two brothers suffered heartless and cold treatment with sinister overtones. Now that sounds like a big, ominous statement, but it is based on the facts. When Robert Lowe was just eight years old, he was already in a junior boarding school, which is interesting in light of uh, what was going on. And when he was eight, his father, Eric Lowe, died, allegedly of a brain tumour. Eric Lowe was a member of a successful business family that owned a large department store. He'd left the family business back in the 30s to start his own accountancy firm, which was apparently quite successful. And he enlisted in the RAF during World War II and served in the RAF. But having survived World War II, he came home to their hometown near Newcastle upon Tyne. And within weeks, certainly not more than months, he died suddenly. It's an insight into the way children of that era were treated in some families that the news was broken to eight-year-old Robert this way. He was called out of the classroom. He was told baldly and bluntly that his father had died. And then he was just sent back to class as if nothing had happened. He just had to pick up his pencil and keep working. Now, it was a lifetime later that Robert Lowe told these things to Margaret Hobbs, who took extensive notes and who believed that what had happened to him as a little boy dictated the way he behaved later on. Just to put listeners in the picture about the family, each of the Lowe brothers, that is uh, Graham, Robert and Rick, had the name Selby in their surname. So it was Robert, Arthur, Selby, Lowe. It was Terence, Richard, Selby, Lowe and so on and so forth. And now this was because their mother's family name was Selby and Selby was an old and famous name in the north of England and probably in the border districts of Scotland. The boy's mother, Joan, 
was the daughter of one Robert E. Selby, a New Zealand businessman who served with distinction in the Boer War and World War I, and then followed his daughter home to England, as they used to say in those days. After serving World War I, he moved to England where his own parents would have come from, and he was regarded sufficiently highly that when this great war veteran of two wars died in 1954, there were very long and glowing obituaries written about him. But the Selbys were somebodies. Lowe's mother, Joan Selby, was related to Ronald Selby Wright, an eminent clergyman who had a war record as a padre. Now, Wright had served as a padre in the months leading up to D-Day. He'd, in fact, been in the Allied forces that were taken off the French coast at Dunkirk, and he had served as a padre with some distinction and was very well regarded because he was well-bred, as they used to say in those days. He was well-educated. He was a cultured man. He graced the church and the universities and ticked all the boxes that marked him as a member of the ruling classes. And in fact, Ronald Wright, Ronald Selby Wright, came to serve as the Queen's chaplain in Edinburgh, where he was a senior clergyman in the Church of Scotland Church. He was well regarded at the boarding schools and uh, what they call the great public schools uh, in the north of England and Scotland. And it is said that he influenced the future Prime Minister, Tony Blair, who was a student at one of the better Scottish boarding schools. And this is the man that the Lowe brothers called Uncle Ronnie. And Uncle Ronnie, Ronald Selby Wright, was in fact the young Robert Lowe's godfather and apparently took quite an interest in him. What we'll never know now is how much of an interest he took in him and how much access he had to him. And we'll be back after this. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Robert Lowe, in the early 90s, when he's talking to Margaret Hobbs, told her that his father had supposedly died of a brain tumour. But he pointed out, possibly without comment, but he pointed out that his mother, Joan, almost immediately married... Dr. Peter McKinley, who was the local police surgeon whose job it was to ascertain the cause of death in any suspicious cases. Now, the clear implication was that his mother and her wartime lover were complicit in his father's sudden death, which 
if it wasn't actually a brain tumour, could have been something rather more sinister, such as poison or whatever. This man, McKinley, was a doctor and undoubtedly he would know how to obtain someone's death if it suited him, particularly if he were the one that got to inspect the body for signs of life afterwards and to sign the death certificate. It would be pretty well the perfect murder along the lines of midsummer murders. One thing was very clear to Margaret Hobbs listening to Robert Lowe, and that was that the merry widow, Joan Selby Lowe, was not interested at all in having her sons around to cramp her style. So each of them were sent off to boarding schools very young. After St Mary's junior school, Robert went to Sedbra up on the Scottish border, which was where his older brother Graham had also gone. At Sedbra, according to Lowe, and Hobbes believed him, a housemaster sexually abused him. This clearly led to some of the deviant and strange behaviour that Lowe later exhibited. But there was something else in him. There was an anger towards the police in particular and the authorities in general. And the reason was he was angry with the police because he saw that the police had connived, as he saw it, in his father's suspiciously convenient death that the police had totally gone along with his mother and McKinley and had not really investigated the circumstances of his father's death. He was only a kid when it happened. What could he do? But there's no doubt he was intelligent and probably perceptive and that he sensed that it all was not right. This anger manifested itself in various ways. In 1956, a young Lowe, who by this stage is about 18 or 19, stole a car and he ran over a policeman. Now, he didn't kill the policeman, but he injured him. This, had it happened, you know, if if the village lout had done this, he'd probably end up getting two years in jail. But Robert Lowe was not the village lout. He was an offshoot of the famous Selby family, they were well-heeled, they were well-connected, and he implied to Margaret Hobbs that the family, in fact, bought his way out of that scrape. But he subsequently spent a year in the army, which makes you think that perhaps uh, magistrates and judges in that era were a bit inclined to say, if you join the army and do 12 months or whatever, you can walk away from a jail sentence. I suspect those deals were done because he did a year in the army, which also ended badly. After he was discharged for reasons that we don't know but we can guess at, there was even more trouble locally around Newcastle upon Tyne and around 1958. The family decided to move to New Zealand, which was in fact Joan's birthplace. Now, big brother Graham, he was the rugby player, rugby captain, he was the sailor, he was the born leader. He answered an advertisement looking for boat crew to sail across the world on a 70-foot yacht. He nailed down the job from many other applicants because he was very impressive. 
and he made his way to New Zealand on this yacht via the Caribbean, which was a pretty uh, interesting way to get across the world. But it would be typical of Graham's dash and flair and nerve and capability that he would, A, think he could do that and, B, actually do it. Graham Lowe went on to be a giant in the New Zealand meat industry and, in fact, such a big figure in that industry that he was known in the industry globally because he set up one of the biggest meat export firms anywhere and was very big in the allied trades such as hides and leather and so on. He became a multi-millionaire businessman, head of the Lowe Corporation, and he became a big philanthropist in New Zealand. The youngest brother, Rick, was also quite successful in business, in finance and things like that, although nothing like Graham. Their mother's husband, Peter McKinlay, Dr McKinlay, the former police surgeon, bought a medical practice at Levin near Wellington. Robert Lowe, when he arrived, he boarded in Wellington where he really continued that lonely life that had started when he was probably seven, when he was sent to boarding school back in England. Now he was boarding in a boarding house somewhere in Wellington in New Zealand. He was 22 years old. And what he did was loiter constantly around public toilets where he got a name with the local police for being what was then regarded as a deviant character. In 1959, he was charged with indecent assault and he went or was sent by his family to Auckland. Now, clearly the family were embarrassed by him even before he was sentenced to six months jail in 1961 and again convicted of willful and obscene exposure in 1964. He was also convicted of theft, so he was a compulsive thief. He was a compulsive exhibitionist who would expose himself at the drop of a zip and he hung around public toilets where he would proposition people or uh, try to shock people, but he wasn't just another sort of frustrated gay man who was a victim of the times. He was a very bent unit with some very strange behaviours. Clearly, this worried the rest of the family. And around the time that younger brother Rick became engaged, Robert was encouraged to take a one-way ticket to Australia. He arrived here, I think in Melbourne, in 1967, and again lived in boarding houses, living that same strange sort of semi-nomadic life. In 1969, he went to a Billy Graham crusade at, I think, the MCG, where, you know, huge crowds would go to see Billy Graham, the great American evangelist, preach. He was a very charismatic preacher and powerful figure and a lot of people went and a lot of people talked about him and he also went to the Scots church on Christmas day and it was there that he met a young woman called Lorraine Sangster. Now Lorraine had been brought up in the strict exclusive brethren sect which she told me years later was a bit like 
being brought up with the Amish. No television, no radio, you know, blanked out windows so you wouldn't look out at the world. They lived very, very narrow and prescribed lives. And so Lorraine, although she'd left the exclusive brethren, was very sheltered and very naive. And all she wanted to do in life was to marry a young Christian man. And he was this sort of dashing, well-spoken, charming, tall, what she thought was good-looking man who she thought was the real deal and she agreed to marry him. And they set the wedding date for 1972 in the Camberwell Baptist Church and Lorraine expected that the brothers that she hadn't met, Graham and Rick Lowe, would come across from New Zealand and act as Brother Robert's groomsmen, which would have been wonderful because they were these successful business people in New Zealand and very big deal, and Robert spoke about them glowingly. But they declined to come. In the end, the brothers stayed away, the family stayed away from the wedding, and they had to press gang a couple of virtual strangers to act as groomsmen. Now, this was the first warning for Lorraine that all was not what it seemed with this polite and well-spoken young man that she'd married. But it took her another 20-odd years to work out how bad it really was. Big brother Graham is getting wealthier by the year at this stage. He kept his distance from Robert all through that time until 91, 92, when it was clear that Robert was in the frame for murdering this little girl, Cherie Beasley. He hadn't been charged, but he was the prime suspect for very good reason. It was then that Graham bit the bullet, flew into Melbourne, spoke to his brother in Margaret Hobbs's Fitzroy rooms in Victoria Parade, clearly didn't believe any of the cock and bull story that Robert told him, but he wanted to defend the family name as best he could, so he bankrolled quite good uh, defence lawyers to try and beat the charges that were coming up against Robert. His mission was doomed. As uh, a friendly detective told me later, Lowe's barrister actually confided to him at a Christmas party that while he usually got on well with his clients, he'd taken an instant dislike to Lowe because he was just so unlikable. The jury agreed. Lowe was finally convicted in 1994, more than three years after Cherie's murder. And he was convicted with the help of a cop killer called Peter Reed, a very dangerous and violent man, but one who'd been absolutely sickened by the stories that Lowe told him in jail. It was Reed, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, who volunteered to elicit information from Lowe in the guise of helping him construct a defence case. But what he was doing, in fact, was persuading Lowe to tell him what had happened and to tape the whole conversation. Meanwhile, across the Tasman, while Robert Lowe is being convicted, his brothers are by now pretending he doesn't exist. When Graham Lowe died in 2012, he was hailed as a giant 
of Kiwi industry and a white knight in philanthropy. He was sort of like uh, John Elliott in Australian terms or Twiggy Forest or a figure like that. His son, Andy Lowe, said about his father, we have lost a great husband, father, mentor and friend. He's touched the lives of so many from all walks of life. But so did Robert, the black sheep of the Lowe family. He touched a lot of lives too, and he damaged them all. Soon after the cell door slammed on Lowe for life, his godfather, the eminent Uncle Ronnie, Selby Wright, was buried with all the honours that came with his position, including a marble bust in uh, one of the big Edinburgh churches. But two years later, in 1997, the Sunday Times newspaper published detailed but unprovable allegations that Ronnie Selby Wright was a lifetime pedophile who groomed boys in the youth clubs that he'd set up in the poor parts of Edinburgh. There were, of course, furious denials on Uncle Ronnie's behalf from his friends in high places and low places. But none of these apologists managed to kill the idea that Robert Lowe's godfather was no more than an upmarket version of Jimmy Savile. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, within a few weeks, all three Lowe brothers are dead because Rick died in October and Robert died on November the 4th at the Hopkins Correctional Facility at Ararat where the worst of the worst are locked up. And about all we can say is good riddance to bad rubbish. But we have to remember that people like him usually don't just come out of a clear blue sky. There's nearly always a story behind the story. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode.